When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. A year ago, Ukraine liberated the town of Bucha, north of Kiev. Quickly, stories emerged of horrendous actions perpetuated by Russian troops. There were reports of torture, rape, and mass killings. The name, Bucha, has become synonymous with the cruelty of Russia's full-scale invasion. I'm afraid when you look at what's happening in Bucha, what Putin has done, you know, doesn't look far short of genocide. But from what we've gathered, this was a place where Ukrainians were taken to be tortured and possibly killed. War crimes. You can see they were committing war crimes, and they were trying to hide it by burning everything. This is a special episode of Ukraine The Latest. I'm David Knowles. A few months after the liberation, I travelled to Bucha. I wanted to get a sense of what life had been like under Russian occupation. In this episode, I'll take you back with me on my trip. If you were on this street... You, you didn't survive, you didn't really get away with, with anything as, as the bombs came in, and every single fence we walked past has got shrapnel damage. We'll hear from the people of the town who saw the war come into their lives and still live with its horrific consequences. When I arrived in Bucha, I met 52-year-old local resident Igor Savchenko. We'd arranged to meet up through his daughter, Katya, who I interviewed last spring after she had escaped from the town. He gave me a tour of Bucha, where he's lived with his family since 2014. They have moved to the city from Donetsk, which is still under Russian occupation, to escape the violence of the war in the east. Igor's a Russian speaker. And he started by showing me and my translator Ilya around his neighbourhood. Well, Igor, thank you very much for inviting us to, to see your butcher. Um, you've just pointed out something quite interesting on the floor that you want us to you want to talk about and want to tell us about. Can you do that? So here is my house. We were there since the invasion, since uh, February 21st. Here are the marks from Russian tanks. They, like, driving here, stopped there and, like, uh, bombed uh, the house. So Igor has just given us, just picking up off the floor, some shards of metal, shrapnel, and what he was just showing us is a, a ring of sort of white marks on the floor in a parking space, which is where the tank swerved. And, and so, so th- thank you very much, Igor. So there's four pieces of metal here. So just to give you some context, we're standing next to a... 
we're just in the car park of what's a very normal apartment block here in Butcher, and we're just being shown where the, you know, the Russian tanks sort of span around and bombed, bombed the flats here. And Eagle's just walking around to the front um, to see some of the damage, uh, which has not been repaired yet, of course. Uh, this is uh, like uh, the result of uh, strike. There was a fire, like it was in March, uh, 3rd or, or 4th of March, and like the neighbors were in there, uh, but like the people were in the house when like there was a fire and a uh, bomb. What, what happened to them? Uh, in that exactly flat, it was empty, but in the whole house, like two old people uh, stayed, and the fire was uh, stopped by uh, just Ukrainians, just neighbors. There's a shell splatter on the floor there. The shell would have come in over the top and smashed into the ground, and the shrapnel has gone off into the wall. We can see it in the metal fence. It shredded some of the brick on the side, and this is... You know, just a it's just an average suburban street. There's nothing particularly special about it at all. But the damage from the from the, from the artillery is, is everywhere. And Eagle's just bumped into some of his neighbours who have just come back from Turkey. Um, and we're dragging some of the suitcases up to the uh, to his apartment now. So there's a, a young woman and her mother, I think, who've just come, finally come back to Bucha after several months away. And the father is still away with the Ukrainian army. Eagle's experiences at the start of the conflict fascinated me. But I wanted to understand a little more about him and to hear what he did as Russian troops entered the city. So we're up in Igor Savchenko's flats. He's given us some chocolate and uh, what looks like a steaming cup of coffee. Um, thank you very much for talking to us. I guess before we talk about your experience in February and March, um, when we met, so I'm here with Ilya, our translator as well, you had a moment where you sort of both realised you were Russian speakers. What's the experience of people who, who speak Russian first in Ukraine? What, what is it like? There were no difference between Ukrainian speakers and Russian speakers. No problem with that. There was, and I suppose, easy. Well, that's good to hear. You, you've led us into your apartment. You stayed here for, for for how long? And what was your time inside like? Uh, he was in the flat since 24th of February, the first day, and uh, till 6th of March. It was very scary because you hear all the sounds, like the bombing, the fire, uh, and like uh, missiles goes uh, just uh, around your house. It's very scary. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, it was in the winter, so it's like uh, really early. The sky was red because of fire. Everything was in fire. How did he cope with being inside and being in the, in the center of, of this battle? I was ready because I was sure that the war will be. So when it started, it wasn't a surprise for me. But it was shock. We were like, ready for this. We had a bunch of uh, batteries, candles, uh, foods and water. I decided to stay here in my home. I didn't want to leave the cat. And he said that he would be helpful, like if missiles strike the home, 
uh, he would uh, help like neighbors to stop the fire and like be helpful. You said you were prepared. You had batteries and socks and and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the neighbors? What about the rest of Butcher? Were, were some people prepared and some people weren't prepared? If so, how did they react? Естественно, кто-то кто-то готовился, кто-то не верил, что это произойдет. He was sure, but his friends weren't. And and like the 23rd of February, they were debating about this. He said, "Yeah, the war will be there." So, no, no way, it's impossible. And uh, he thinks that uh, the majority of citizens of Bucha weren't prepared. As the war came closer to Bucha, Igor's wife and daughters went to the basement of a local school, along with hundreds of other civilians. He, however, remained here, in his flat. This is obviously a, a personal question, so if it's too much, that's absolutely fine. But how, how did Igor and his family talk about what was going on? How did how did you decide who was going to be where, and what was the reaction when he said he was going to stay in the flat? Plus, еще в подвале было очень много людей. Там были в основном. Uh, it was his decision to stay. Uh, his family was uh, not that happy about it, but he insisted on this. And uh, uh, also, like, the basement was full of children, women, uh, old people, and animals, and he felt morally unacceptable to be here. He felt some sort of guilty because he's a man and he must uh, hide with those women and children and like he's a man he needs to do something after finishing our cup of coffee Igor decided to show me around the school which had served as a shelter during the occupation when we got there i was surprised to discover just how big it was a maze of corridors and rooms under the butcher lyceum number four in the cold months of march more than 400 people and animals had sheltered there. It was still being used by the community, and a whole committee had turned out to show me around. So we're just underneath the school in Butcher, a long series of corridors and basements, which is where the people here sheltered during the occupation. We're being shown around by some teachers, uh, people who work at the school, and of course Igor, uh, who was showing us where his family was staying. So he was pointing out in the corner where, where Katya was, was, was living for, the, for this time. Igor said that when, we first, when they first got here, there was no light, so everybody had their own lighter, everybody had their own candle or something. And, wow. And how did the, how did the children um, deal with being down here? That's one of the teachers in the shelter. The children were feeling like very bad, like uh, they didn't eat, uh, they have like psychological trauma. They now afraid of thunder, uh, of noise. Yeah. First day there were light, heat and uh, water, but then uh, after one uh, bomb, Nothing, like no light, uh, water, heat. Mm-hmm. Saying that the temperature at its worst was minus seven degrees and it was about zero degrees inside uh, the shelter. It's an absolutely huge complex. I mean, 
can't even count the number of rooms. Vitaly, who's the um, kind of a coordinator, making sure everything's right, he says that they'd go outside, find warm clothes, it was so cold, and they'd walk out saying quite loudly, you know, I need coats and jackets because people are cold, just make sure the Russians wouldn't shoot them and when they get into a shop, the Russian soldiers still shot them. So everybody in this room has been was down here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But not in this particular room, but sure. sure. And sorry. They didn't know each other before. For people in the West and outside of Ukraine, a lot of this is through we see what's happening through the news. But you you all lived this, you lived through months of this. What would you want people to know about your experience? That we are united and because they were united, they uh, know how to survive. It's like everybody has uh, his role. Uh, their generation, like uh, of these people, knew who is the enemy because they saw Chechnya, Abkhazia, uh, Georgia in 2008. Like they uh, have experience about uh, who is the enemy and how to survive. You said you didn't know each other before this, that you were brought together by the invasion, brought together by living here. What's the sense of community like now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's like a family. Самое приятное для меня, например, было, когда я мог попросить людей, допустим, там заниматься. He felt that he can lie on these people, like if he have have an order, they will do it. Igor said that he wanted to say to the people of the West that uh, they shall not think that this is war in somewhere far away in another country because the way from Bucha to London it's not so long. Uh, we're thankful for your help, but it's not just uh, our war. This is not Ukrainians' war, but the whole progressive world. I mean, it takes around, you know, a minute and a half to walk out of this complex. It's absolutely huge. And this is where up to 400 people lived. After showing me the basement, the committee took me up to the school gym, which was still being used by the community to support the war effort. So it's absolutely extraordinary here. We've got one corner full of mattresses made out of yeah, everything, so soft toys, clothes, and that they're making for the army. There's another, another, another sort of camouflage. Yeah. <laughs> Can I see that's nice. That's good. It's heavy. And we've got over here the sort of yeah, the, the stuff of the Ukrainian army. There's this, I mean, this is an, an absolutely astonishing operation. These are all volunteers that are all just doing this. So we think that actually what they're making here is um, covers for snipers in the centre of the room, which is quite something. Raw materials everywhere here, the sort of rag, boxes of rags on the side. I'd say there's about three, six, twelve, uh, fifteen... 17, 18 people in here all, all working away. My translator, Ilya, noticed how impressed I was with what was going on in front of us. He pointed out that this was nothing special. It was happening all across Ukraine. This is a complete community effort. We've got um, kids coming from school to help, so as young as five or six, standing with their mums. And we've got uh, some of the oldest people in the community as well, 84, 83, sitting in the corner, making rooms as well, so... And it's when you talk about the sort of Ukrainian spirit that you sit, you sit in a place like this. I, I do not know how you would conquer these people. They're standing in their own gym after spending two months underground. And they're coming up and making sniper covers and tank covers and camouflage for, for infantrymen. 
So it sort of comes to the end of our of our journey through Butcher. Um, and Igor's been showing us everything. He's taken us to his apartment, shown us some of the damage around his neighborhood, and uh, shown us the school where the community sheltered. And when we were going around the school, they were preparing already one of the basements because of the rule saying if you there's an airstrike, then children need to go downstairs. So even, obviously, it was great to hear about the, the hope and the unity and the working together, but there was still preparation for potential violence in the future. So I want to ask... Could he ever forgive? Could he ever forgive the people who did this? Probably one day, but now his his heart is full of anger. He is thinking maybe of some revenge. He said that it's not uh, the best uh, human quality to, like to take revenge, but uh, he is uh, full of anger because they destroyed his life, of his family, of his children. He uh, some of Uh, his friends were killed but uh, he thinks that the majority of people in Ukraine are now like we can't forgive them now but maybe in like historical perspective uh, probably having gone through everything he's gone through is he hopeful about the future yeah of course uh, we have hope if we were hopeless like you are hearing the sound of building something so people restoring their houses uh, they want to build a good country like when Igor has a conversation with Russians the main point was like you uh, mustn't live better than we do he thinks that the victory will be when we will build the country much better than Russia we will get our country better, stronger, and more beautiful than it was. Igor Sachenko, thank you very much for your time. It's hugely appreciated. Many months have passed since I was in Butcher with Igor. I decided to catch up with his daughter, Katya. She's 28 years old and is now living in Warsaw. Well, Katya, it's really, really good to see and hear you again. Hi, David. It's so nice to hear you again. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Could you bring us back to April last year? When did you leave Butcher and how did you get out? Last year in April, I was already in Warsaw. I left Butcher the 4th of March. I think I'll never forget this date. I really wasn't sure if I would sever my family again in my life. Thanks God, everything is okay and we managed to escape. My friend helped me. He took us to the west of Ukraine and then we left the country on 9th of March. Yeah, my friends from Poland, they uh, picked us up by the car from the border and delivered us to Warsaw. You said that you you weren't sure back then whether you'd see your, your family again. Obviously, a year on, how have they been since last March and since I saw them, of course, last July? You were the first one to see them after all the situation, even faster than me. <laughs> I think they, they are doing fine. Of course, despite of the fact that this is war, there are some... Uh, missile attacks, some sirens, etc. But still there at home, we had this chance to go back home, yeah, because some people, their homes were destroyed. And we were really lucky that our place was okay. They, they left for a couple of months, but then after liberation of Butcher, they came back. 
for the first couple of months, we were communicating only by phone. But then oh, finally, I met my mom because she went to visit me to Warsaw with my sister. And uh, this was really nice. Finally showed her the city. Like I introduced her to the family who helped us here. And wow, that was that was a magical experience for me. And then finally, I met my dad in September when I went back to Kiev and to, to Bucha for, for a month. I finally managed to visit my lovely cities because I was too scared to do that. But I was crying because I haven't seen my dad for half a year. They're doing fine, just trying to continue their life, donate money to Ukrainian army and uh, doing their job, just living, just continue their life. <laughs> Would you like to tell us a little bit about your your life in Warsaw now? And as you said, you, you left Ukraine, moved to Warsaw, made new friends, started a, a new job. What, what's that like? What do you do? Yeah, I'm working for a Ukrainian company. Like, actually, I had to sign my offer on 24th of February, actually, one year ago. <laughs> and um, when everything started, of course, I, I didn't think about job at all. Like I was thinking just about how to survive. But then when I was already in Poland, and actually it was ex- uh, exactly the 9th of March, so just entered the the country and uh, uh, our HR wrote me that, Kate, how are you? Are you okay? We are ready to continue our process. So I was like super happy about that opportunity because, you know, I really needed a job. Um, and uh, about my life in Warsaw, you know, for the first time I didn't like it <laughs> because it's just like, oh, I don't want to be here. I just want to be in Ukraine. I don't even understand how just how it happened that I'm here. But I just understood that I'm starting to love it, really. And somehow it feels like the second home to me, especially after my trip to Kiev. Yeah, um, I was in Kiev when uh, it was a massive, uh, massive attack on 10th of October. And I was scared to death. And I was just waiting, counting each second of time to go back to Warsaw as soon as possible. And finally, when I arrived back, I, I just I feel that relief that whew, I'm in Warsaw. So somehow it feels like a safe place for me now and it feels like the second home to me. Katja, may, may I ask, um, this is a difficult question, I know, but when I was in Butcher, I your, your dad showed me around uh, the school and through the basements and the sort of the endless, endless corridors and the endless rooms. And at one point he said, you know, and this is where Katja was. And suddenly I could, in my own mind, match up the, the video I think you sent me during one of the bombardments. Um, and, and, and it was a, a very odd experience to s- suddenly be there and see where you had been. Um, do you now think back a lot to that time? How do you, I mean, you, you sort of said, you know, it's incredibly difficult and hard to process what happened. Are, are you able to do that? Do you think about it a lot? Um. I'm thinking of it every day, almost every day. Like I was repeating all the situations from the very beginning to the end all the time in my mind. I don't know why. It just maybe that was my way to understood what happened to me. I don't know. For the first time, I had a lot of dreams each night. Some some really scared ones about me dying in the basement, about my family in the basement, about explosions, and. Um, even if I didn't want to think about it, I, I was like, I couldn't uh, not to do that. And um, now, um, yeah, of course, especially I was thinking a lot of these moments when it was uh, one year of the full scale invasion. Yeah, just recalling all like each hour, each minute. I was just like, okay, now it's like, let's say like 12 uh, p.m. Yeah, of the day. So exactly this time 
I was already in Bucha and there were the first flights. Uh, I, I don't know why it, it's happening. Somehow, it, I just understood that somehow it helps me to really appreciate what do I have now, that I'm alive. Of course, uh, that my family is alive, everyone is alive. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a part of me. I don't want to, to forget about it. Of course, I want to move on, but no, I definitely do not want to forget about that event. You've spoken um, movingly about your new life in Warsaw and of the difficulties and your experiences going back to Kiev and to Bucha. Do you think you will ever go back permanently? How are you feeling about that? Um, uh, this is a really difficult topic for me, frankly speaking, because, you know, um, my first month is here before my first time my first visit uh, to Ukraine after the full-scale invasion, I was waiting for this moment like each like each hour. I was thinking about it all the time, that I won't go back. I don't want to stay here. I just want to go to, back to Ukraine. But I was so scared to go, th- to go there. And then I just decided, okay, I just need to do that uh, and just fight my fear, yeah, and see what's going on there. Uh, when I arrived, I was the happiest person in this world. It was my birthday. I I saw my parents. I saw my friends. We had the walks around our favorite places. I was posting lots of pictures and videos where I just was screaming, okay, I love you. This is my favorite city ever. Yeah, I had this kind of euphoria. And I was even thinking of going back to Kiev. But my euphoria like finished uh, after that stance of October when I woke up because of explosions and it was not so far from my house again. It was really loud. And uh, I understood that my mental health is not ready for that. Just I was super disappointed with myself. I can't even explain you how, how bad I felt. Not because, um, Not only because of the fear, but because of this feeling that uh, oh my gosh! And I'm not. Am I not Ukrainian enough? Just I'm, that I cannot. Like other people, they are. Of course, they they are afraid too, but they are still. They are not leaving the country. They continue their life in Kiev. They somehow manage to to handle with the stress. And I cannot do that. I couldn't even breathe. Like I couldn't eat. Couldn't breathe. I was just sitting and crying. And my friend came to my home just to help me to collect some stuff. And he. Like took me with his help to uh, to the shelter, and I was sitting there for twenty four hours and didn't want to go out. And after that situation, when I returned to Warsaw, I understood that something changed into me, and my fear become even like more powerful. I don't know; it's really sad. And uh, just comparing this, the first half of a year, yeah, and the second half of a year, I understand that the first half of a year I was really like thinking like I won't go back, I won't go back, and now I something changed and I understand that I'm, I'm so scared. So I don't even think about it. Like, unfortunately, of course I won't go back. I don't want to like live in any other country. I just want to live in Kiev with my friends, with my family, or even at least if I decide to move to another country, I don't want to be because of war or something, something terrible. But, but for now, um, I, I'm, I'm too scared. Unfortunately, I'm not that strong. Uh, I'm trying to, like to to help with everything I can do, just being here. But yeah, <laughs> I'm blaming myself for that. I blame myself for this fear, for this, because of course I'm missing lots of things. You see these pictures from the funerals, yeah, of your friends, of our soldiers, and you want to go there just to give this honor. 
to to be there, but you can't because you are in another country and you're too scared to go there. So I don't know. Um, I don't know if Russia will say that okay. We are like uh, moving our troops out of Ukraine. Yeah, we are leaving your territory and the war is over. I think that I will still have this fear because of can't trust Russia, never. For me, it won't mean anything and maybe I'll need some time to finally accept it and go back to Ukraine. Is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important to mention or you want to say? Uh, it's... Um, no, maybe I want just to say thank you one more time to to all our defenders, to our soldiers. It's changing every day. You see that more of your friends went to serve in the Ukrainian army, and two of my closest, my best friends, also went to serve the Ukrainian army. And uh, it's it's too close, of course, when when you hear the news uh, of husbands of your friends are dying, for example, some people that you know, it's. Um, and I just understand that we need to do everything we can, like to donate even more, because you know now it's it's more much more difficult. Um, it's more difficult to raise money now, like because people are get tired of news of this. But we don't have any chance to just to stop doing this. We need to continue. We need to support with um, yeah with money, with um, news, everything, uh, because it's not only about some people it's about our closest people about our friends and the people you know the people you spend your best time together um i understand that uh, some people can be tired of this but but trust me no one is tired as our soldiers who are fighting who doesn't have any days off like they don't have rest uh, they work 24 7 to protect us to protect our families so uh, let's be strong, uh, because if they can be strong, we also can be strong. Thank you very, very much for your time. And Cantor, I think you're incredibly strong. Thank you. And finally, to wrap up this episode, I wanted to catch up with my colleague Harriet Barber, a global health reporter at The Telegraph. She was in Butcher just a month ago and published a long feature about the effort to investigate sexual violence committed by Russian troops during the occupation and the long-term effects of the war. Here's our conversation. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Harriet, what drew you to Butcher in March 2023? I visited Butcher to report on war crimes, particularly the murder and rape of civilians under Russian occupation in spring 2022. Harriet, we visited Butcher about eight months apart. I went in high summer. You were there in March. What were your impressions of the town and the people eight months on? One of my first takeaways was the huge amount of reconstruction work underway. On the drive into town, we saw billboards with phrases like let's rebuild Butcher plastered on them. Down one of the main roads, which last year was lined with tanks, there was barely a house which didn't have a team of builders working on it. The locals invited us into their homes and pulled out all of the stops. Biscuits, Ukrainian coffee, one even bought a small heater in to keep us warm. They were really eager to tell us about their life under occupation, how they'd had to hide in basements, how their mothers had fled during evacuation convoys and how relatives had been killed in the streets. There was some anger, a lot of fear, and for a handful of people there was some positivity too, that the town was being rebuilt and that they would be okay. What were they doing to come to terms with the occupation and the crimes committed during it? 
Some of the people who were raped under occupation have taken their cases to Ukraine's prosecutors and given evidence to help identify their perpetrators. Many more are now receiving counselling from specialist psychologists to work through the abuse that they suffered. There is still a lot of fear in all of the formerly occupied towns and villages we visited. We met a priest who said that this anxiety has really mounted in recent months. He said he has between 30 to 40 people coming to him each week and asking if they need to leave again. In Borodyanka, which is a nearby town which had been badly damaged in the fighting, families had gathered the day that we were there to lay flowers and hold a memorial service for 30 civilians killed in just one apartment block. So it's a mixture, really, of of counselling, trying to hold these perpetrators to account and trying to mourn the people that have been lost. Going back to Butcher, who did you speak to and what did they say? We, we spoke to some of the psychologists treating people who had been abused. They talked about their patients suffering with flashbacks, body dissociation, sleeping problems. We also spoke to people who had lived in bunkers for weeks on end. They, some of them proudly told us how they would sneak out in the evenings to wipe the Russian soldiers' markings off the walls. Uh, we met two elderly women who had told us about being forced to live with Russian soldiers, how the soldiers had killed their animals and held guns to their heads. They were very shaken by this and said that they'd felt forgotten in in the past year. Uh, And we met a man who wanted to show us where his brother had been killed in the street right outside their home. His brother was a civilian in his 30s and had been dressed in a bright yellow jacket at the time of his murder. He showed us the photos of where he'd buried his brother in in their garden and how he'd laid yellow daffodils on top of the grave. Harriet, when you were leaving, uh, were you optimistic about the future from what you heard and what you saw? It was really positive to see the rebuilding works and to hear that people are able to access counselling. But you can feel that the fear many people have, and I don't think that until there's an end to this fighting that that tension and anxiety is, is really going to go away. Thank you very much, Harriet, for your time. Thanks for having me. Thinking back on my time in Butcher and speaking to friends, contacts and colleagues about their stories, it's easy and understandable to despair. To despair at the cruelty and the horror. To despair at the culture of deliberate brutality of the Russian army. It was heartrending to see how the wanton destruction and petty terror has ripped the community apart. It's easy to despair at how the scars left by these crimes will probably never heal. How the people I spoke to will never be truly free of those memories of the freezing months when they didn't know if they would make it out alive. There are, of course, many who didn't, whose voices are lost forever. People with hopes and dreams who had their hands tied behind their back before being thrown into a ditch. But even in the darkness of the crimes of Butcher, there are rays of hope. When I was there, the air was full of the sounds of hammering and drilling as the residents, aided by people from across Ukraine and beyond, rebuilt their homes. I saw the hope of the community in the school gym, assisting their army to victory. I see the hope of Katya in her new home in Warsaw. The hope of my colleague Harriet Barber, who thinks that maybe, just maybe, the people who did this will be brought to justice. And my hope, that one day I can go back to Butcher and see it for what it should be known for, the kindness, hospitality and resilience of its people. There's a long way to go before that day but I hope it will come. To hear more of our reporting on the ground in Ukraine, do look out for my colleague Daniel Sheridan's dispatches from Butcher and the work of my colleague Harriet Barber, who you heard earlier in this episode. This special episode of Ukraine The Latest was produced by Adley Poznan-Ponte and Giles Gear. The sound design and mixing was done by Elliot Lampitt. 
and my translator was Ilya Honcharov. The executive producer was Louisa Wells. And the presenter was me, David Knowles. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.